Uh, it's been a full week. Thank you for your prayers, uh, not only for us, but for the Anderson family and for our community uh, as we deal with uh, senseless tragedy. And uh, we're going to now kind of move forward this week back into the sermon series we've been in called Look Forward to Jesus, or that's the theme, Look Forward to Jesus. The thread that goes throughout Scripture is exactly that, Old Testament and New. Uh, the Bible is a compilation of 66 individual books, and every book in some way says look forward to Jesus. The first half of the Bible written before the time of Christ, the Old Testament, is largely but not exclusively pointing to his birth, the first time he came. Uh, and then the New Testament points to what hasn't happened yet. That's the second coming of Christ. And so before we dive into it, um, we've normally been doing hand motions. You get a break today. So, ah, good, all right? You love those hand motions, don't you? Uh, but it helps you remember. So we'll play a little Who Am I instead. It's that book I wrote for families and their kids. Uh, it's a great way to teach kids the Bible. It's not available here. You have to go to Amazon. So you know how we play this. I'm going to read the clue, the clue, and you're going to guess. You're not going to say it out loud. Or you have to sit in the corner. All right, so here we go. I wanted to name our baby John. Friends and relatives were confused at this because they assumed we'd name him after his father or another relative. My husband agreed with me to name him John. Who am I? If you know, raise your hand. All right, a few. Second, when I became pregnant, I stayed mostly to myself in private for the first five months. I knew people wouldn't believe I was pregnant until it was obvious. Who am I? Okay, a few more. A couple of you are bluffing, right? There, you raise your hand just to kind of go with it, right? So, no. Third, my cousin Mary came to visit me when she learned she was pregnant. When she arrived and I heard her voice, my baby, my baby boy leaped for joy inside of me. Who am I? Of course, it's Elizabeth, right? Mary's cousin. Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist and one of the heroes of our message this weekend. So we're going to dive in to the thread. And this week, uh, we're working through the Gospels. I'm just going to hit some highlights from Mark and Luke. And so they don't necessarily flow in any progression, but they're just different perspectives that the Gospels share. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels. And I've said before that when you read the Bible, when you realize that it is a book that's thousands of years old, it's helpful to look at the original context, who it was written to, who it was written by, and when. And we gain more meaning from the Bible when we look at that rather than just 2022, open the book, and see what it says. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do you ever notice how they sound sometimes almost identical? It's because they're using similar source material. They did the research, and so they have uh, written documents, they have oral tradition, and they compile their Gospels. And so I want to look at some excerpts from Luke and Mark today. Uh, Luke is actually, if you have a Bible or Bible device, we're not going to put this on the screen, but turn to the first chapter of Luke, the first four verses, and you'll see that Luke is actually volume one. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word which was handed down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is a Greek name. It literally means friend of God. And so Luke is writing this. His primary recipient is a nobleman, a Greek nobleman named Theophilus. So that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. 
Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And if you go to the book of Acts, he has a similar introduction uh, to this man, Theophilus. Okay, I'm writing you the gospel and the birth of the church. And so we see that Luke did his homework, did his research, compiled this gospel, used a lot of the same reference material that Matthew and Mark did. Uh, but Luke is to a, a Greek audience, so it's a little more philosophical approach. He also explains some of the things that are just assumed in Matthew. Matthew is a Jew written to a Jewish audience. That's why in Matthew there are more Old Testament quotes than any other uh, gospel because he's quoting the Old Testament, which was the Bible of Jews, helping them put two plus two together. This is Jesus the Messiah. Mark, we'll see, is written to a Roman audience, but Luke is written to a, a Greek audience. And Luke is called in Colossians, call, Paul calls him the beloved physician. He is a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. He's also a doctor. You can see some of his doctoring come through when you read the first chapter, first chapter or two of Luke, when he gives the birth narrative of Christ. Matthew and Luke are the people who tell about the birth of Christ, a little town of Bethlehem, all that. That's Matthew and Luke. And when Luke talks about it, he talks about in the sixth month, in the third month, in the sixth month, when it was time to deliver, you kind of can see him talking about trimesters like a doctor would. You also see that Luke report records some miracles and references those that other gospel writers don't. But then again, he's a doctor. He's going to notice these things. And he is also loyal to Paul in 2 Timothy when Paul was in a Roman prison. He made the reference that only Luke is with us. So kind of some background perspective. And the gospel is actually written, uh, theologians surmise uh, that it's written somewhere in the early 60s A.D., Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, was 33 A.D. So about 30 years after Christ ascended back into heaven is when Luke writes this gospel. Now, the gospels obviously aren't so much look forward to Jesus as much as Jesus is here. But even in Luke, there is that forward look as he records teachings of Jesus. These are the words of Christ. And he said, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Then, when? Well, in that chapter, go read it. It's kind of a scary chapter of all the natural disasters, political turmoil, military unrest, societal unrest that's going to happen, signs and wonders that will trouble us before the return of Christ. It's kind of like watching the news today. And he says, then they'll see the Son of Man coming in, in power. But when these things begin to take place, and that's what I take courage in today, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So when all those traumatic things in society and the world start to happen like they are now, it's a good indicator that Christ may be returning. And so we wanted to dive into uh, the first dimension of uh, this message. If you have the CLC app, you can follow along with us. But when we look at the birth of Christ coming to mankind to be our Savior, uh, the theme that we selected was fully human, fully divine, God's design. And I asked Zach and the team to pull together a media piece that would portray this profound truth. Watch this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. 
Babies are born into this world with around 5 million hair follicles, all they'll ever need in their lifetime. Luke 12 tells us that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knew every detail about you before you were even formed, including your conception and your birth. And in the very first chapter of that same book of Luke, we learn about the most important conception in history. An angel came to the Virgin Mary and said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary replied to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then we go on to read that Mary visited her relative Elizabeth, who was pregnant herself in unlikely circumstances. And when she heard Mary's greeting, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the baby leaped in her womb for joy. That joy came from the Lord. A joy from being filled with the Holy Spirit. A joy for a savior in a broken world. Jesus was born like us, to die for us, to show us how precious life is. It's a beautiful representation and a good reminder of a biblical worldview that life, whether it's yours, mine, or Jesus' earthly life, begins in the womb. The Bible is decidedly what we might today call pro-life and uh, we are as a congregation, and while the Supreme Court has pushed back Roe versus Wade, there's more to being pro-life than being against Roe v. Wade. And so as such, our board has made a, an additional co- a financial commitment to a couple of the crisis pregnancy centers that we support to help them with a growing demand. And I'm thankful that we have a ministry called Forever Families. And uh, Forever Families is to assist us as the church to reach out uh, to those who need a home. And so it supports people and answers questions and facilitates foster care as well as adoptive care. And maybe you can't do either, but you want to be part of the solution. You'd like to maybe babysit for foster families so they can have a break and go out or for adoptive parents. And I was thrilled that uh, when you leave just to the left at the welcome table in the lobby, that they are uh, taking registrations on Saturday, August 27th from 11 to 2. Come for a free lunch, but come for a time to learn about how you can be part of our Forever Family Ministry, whether it's raising awareness of foster care, and maybe that's in your future, or maybe supporting those who do that. Uh, But I think one of the greatest ways the church can respond is to say yes to people who choose to keep their child uh, and to say yes to those who find themselves without a home. And so this ministry started several years ago, continues to move forward. You'll want to be part of that, so stop by there today uh, when you leave. I want to change gears now and go to uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark, as I mentioned, is written to a Roman audience. And uh, if there is a theme for Mark, it is Jesus, a servant on the move. 
Uh, several times, in fact, 40 times in only 16 chapters, he uses the word immediately. Jesus has a mission. He is about that. And you get that very clear sense that there, there is uh, no distraction. Uh, Mark was written around 55 AD, uh, probably the earliest gospel, one of the earliest books of the New Testament. But then there's still, uh, some would surmise as, as little as a 10-year, but probably a 20-year gap from the time of Christ to the time that it was written. And uh, I'd like to sort of highlight different dimensions of this gospel. And the first one is simply to be like Jesus. When you think about Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God emptying himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, the form of humanity, it's pretty incredible. Jesus deserved all the rights and privileges of authority and of royalty. And yet we read in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, calling them to himself, Calling his disciples, Jesus said to them, and here's where he's kind of he's setting the tone for what the values are, the countercultural values are of this kingdom of God that he is establishing. He called them to them, and you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, that's the, the non-Jewish world, they lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. Even the Son of Man, that's speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus here was a servant leader. And there's something about serving that gets attention. He could easily have expected people to wait on him hand and fist, but instead he, he gave himself. And, and I believe that serving speaks a universal language. And I'm grateful to, to pastor a congregation like Christian Life Center and I'm grateful to live in the Vandalia Butler community that were located there. Uh, the tragic loss of Sarah and Kayla Anderson. Uh, last Monday, there were a couple thousand people at least gathered at the high school for a prayer service. And then Thursday evening, uh, there were somewhere around 1,500 people that came for the viewing. It was a two and a half hour wait. The, the line went back and forth through these sections. Maybe you were here, all the way down and out the door, down to door two. Not a complaint. Uh, just a compassionate attitude and ambiance in the whole place. Probably 500 people for the funeral. And what was really uh, encouraging to me uh, is that many people from the community came to me and said, man, I just can't believe your church. Your people are incredible. They're amazing. Your church is awesome. And I, I just had to say, you know, we're blessed with a lot of great people. And so I want to thank you for, for your love, for being there, for some scores of you who volunteered to serve. Uh, and to be part of uh, just coming around the Anderson family. And I was talking to some folks that uh, relocated from CLC, but they've come back and they say, you know, CLC knows how to love their own. And so thank you for being part of that and for practicing what Jesus preached, because I believe that serving really is where the rubber meets the road. And it's not about privilege, but it's about how can I help you and serve you. And so that goes beyond just 3489 Little York Road there are people in your neighborhood that are in need, then you can serve them. There are people that you work with, that work for you, that you work for, that needs will come in their life and you can serve them. There are people that sit in the same bleachers that you do when you're watching your kids that have needs come to their life. They need someone to serve them and to attend to and to care for them. And so be that servant throughout the world that God's placed you in. The next point uh, is a question that parents must ask. 
and uh, it was neat to be in the breakfast and see all the young families and I stood there before I came back over to preach again and I was telling one of the guys, you know, I just love watching people come to church and so I was, a lot of you that were hurrying in in that west parking lot coming to door three, I was spying on you. Yeah. And you were kind of, had this real quick walk, you know, like that because, you know, I was like, I said, they got 60 seconds, they can get there. But lots of young families, lots of parents and so I want to kind of have a word uh, for parents. And uh, there's a question that is essential that you ask yourself that a lot of essentials can slip by. We don't notice them until it's hindsight. And so we find it in a story, a very brief one, in Mark chapter 13. And it says, they were bringing children to Jesus so he might touch them. Other verses say bless them. But the disciples rebuked them. Get these kids out of here. Jesus is important. They didn't get that servant leader thing yet. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He got aggravated. And he said to them, permit the children to come to me. A little bite in his voice. Don't hinder them. Say, do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. We often focus on childlike faith that's essential for a relationship with God, and indeed that's essential. We need to have that simple trust instead of insisting that I can figure God out and he has to make sense in every regard. No, there's that childlike trust. But I want to talk about that phrase, do not hinder them. Parents, a question I would suggest to you is how am I countering the hindering influences of my kid's world? How am I countering that? Because the world that your child lives in, the media that they encounter, the entertainment that surrounds them, the school, the friends, the environment, the, the teams, everything that's around them is not saying, well, by all means, the most important thing in your life is that you know Jesus. On the contrary, the world is a, provides a hindering influence to distract your child, anything but prioritizing relationship with Christ. And to start with a, a fairly simple example, and I would make the claim that it is far harder to be the parent of, say, a kindergartner now than it was for my parents when I was a kid. 60 years ago. <laughs> Long time ago. I mean, when I was, when I was a kid... Year-round sports was not a phrase. In fact, when I was a kid, boys could play Little League for about a month and a half, spring, early summer, and that was it. And then if you were good enough, you could play on the junior high, sorry, boys basketball team or football team or track. And, and I guess there was some girls' sports, not all. And then if you were good enough, you could be one of the 10 guys that played you know, basketball, you could play on football. That, that was it. It wasn't year-round. And, and, and so I, I got a job. But there are now so many distractions and busyness that would, but it's, it's even more insidious than that. I remember in 1984, a co-worker on staff said to me, Stan, We've got to come up with $2,000 to invest in something called cellular technology. Because there's a day coming when people are going to walk around with phones in their hand. 1984. 
No cords. And I'm like, I'm making like the equivalent of about 10 bucks an hour. My wife is going to nursing school. I'm getting my MBA and working. I'm like, I don't have $2,000 to invest. Man, I'd have sold, I don't know what, then if I knew now what I knew then. I mean, my goodness. But do you realize what a hindrance these are? And for those of us that are baby boomers, technology is not our first language. And, and so when I have a problem with the language, I find a native, which means a 10-year-old. <laughs> right? Show Pastor Stan how to whatever. You know, they have ESL, English as a second language. They should have TSL, technology as a second language, right? But, and I was telling, I think it was our kids team last couple weeks, I said, you know what? I remember when this was invented, I remember the personal computer was invented, and the internet. I remember the first time we were over somebody's house, and this guy who was the captain in the Air Force, hey, you want to see the internet? Yeah, show me the internet. Well, I think back, back then it was the World Wide Web. And he took me into his study, and he pulled up a web page. I will go back pre-cell phones, pre-internet, pre-all of this in a heartbeat. And all the old people clap, all right? It's important that we don't hinder our children from coming to Jesus. And one of the greatest hindrances in our spiritual life is now one of the hardest things to do is a simple verse in the Bible that says, be still and know that I'm God. But it's really not that. It's more like this. Because now, that little piece of technology, I have the world in it. I can tick and talk all day long. Well, I can't, but you can. And I can look at news all around the world and listen to music. And I, I mean, it is there at my fingertips 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there is no such thing as being still here and here. And one of the greatest hindrances to getting to know a good shepherd who leads me beside quiet waters We are creating the dependence of our children on perpetual, nonstop distraction and screen dependence. And before they can even walk or talk, we already have them conditioned to the bright colors on a screen that 10 years later will threaten to be an addiction to something they'll battle the rest of their life. So parents, the question to ask, and it, and it can't, it's, it, all or nothing doesn't work. I understand that. But what are you doing to counter the hindering influences in your child's life? What are you doing to control them rather than letting them control you? And it goes beyond that. I was at a gathering of churches, of huge churches, mega church pastors, and a pastor, very well known, incredible church, made the statement, if it's Sunday morning and the competition is between us and a soccer game, we lose every time. Don't hinder your children from coming to Jesus. And I'm not saying it's all or nothing. 
we had an athlete in our home, and I understand the challenges and how do you, so you have to pick the teams that don't travel and that kind of stuff. And thankfully, we have a church on Saturday at 5, so you can get done with all your tournaments and still be here if you make that a priority. But I'm just asking the question. I don't have the solution for everyone, but what are you doing or going to do to counteract that which will hinder your child from coming to Jesus? Because the distractions and the obstacles are there in abundance. And I can also tell you that that which seems so crucially important, there will come a day, because my kids are old enough now, when the trophies and the ribbons are probably in a box somewhere, in a closet somewhere, and I'm not totally sure where they ended up. So keep it in perspective, that which is eternal that which matters. And find a way that your child knows Christ. In addition, whatever pursuits and talents you want to develop, that we don't hinder them. And the final point I want to land on, again, kind of just hopscotching through the gospel, is that women matter to Jesus. I remember a missionary saying once that in the culture he was in, women were horrendously oppressed and, and one woman made the, con the comment after re having read the Bible. She said, your God must be a woman with the way the Bible speaks of them, of us. And you read the Gospel of Mark, understanding how they, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they compiled the references and stories and tradition and put it into their gospel. And Mark does it in 16 chapters. In the very first chapter of Mark, the very first miracle he chooses to record is Jesus healing a woman. And it happens to be Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And, and I don't know that you get a whole lot more important than, boom, first miracle, first healing. I want you to know it's a woman. I'll read it for you. It's not on the screen, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, and here's that word immediately. Remember I told you, the servant on a move. And immediately after they'd come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to, to him about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. First miracle recorded. He records it of Jesus healing a woman. In chapter 5, Jesus again is seen healing the daughter, women matter to Jesus, of a synagogue official. In chapter 7, Jesus delivers a young woman, uh, the daughter of a, of a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, from demonic spirits. Women matter to Jesus. In chapter 14, you can read Mary's public, intimate, and embarrassing moment. Do you ever have those times your emotions get the best of you, can't even control it, and you can't, the filter just breaks down, and there they are? That was Mary. Mary came to where Jesus was in a crowded house, and she's overcome with emotion and, and weeping. She anoints Jesus with this very costly perfume. You can imagine the anxiety she would have felt, but she felt like, I have to go do this. And so she busts into the house and she makes her way there and she anoints Jesus. And, and then you would hope that the dinner conversation will go something like, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that precious? Nah. One of his own disciples, 
What's she doing that for? What a waste of money. We could have taken that perfume, sold it, and given it to the poor. And there's this big debate going on about how senseless this is and how foolish she is. I mean, can you imagine her humiliation? That women matter to Jesus, and that, that is instead brought out in more than one of the Gospels to show her love for Christ. Willing to declare it and show it even publicly. You go to chapter 15, and it's the crucifixion of Christ. By the crucifixion, there are now 11 disciples. Judas is gone. And at the cross, one disciple, John, is there at a distance. And the rest of the, tw- the disciples, what happens to them? They flee. They run for their lives. They are scared to death, these men of God. But the Gospels record, and and Mark does in chapter 15, verse 40, and there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. These women had the courage. Their love compelled them to have the courage to be there as Jesus died. The Bible offers further commentary, as do other Gospels. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. And the Bible also commentates other places that some of these women were of great means. And so they helped to underwrite the ministry of Jesus and the disciples financially. These women who were partners with Christ in a day and age when that was unheard of, the Bible elevates their stature and their role and their relationship because, see, women matter to Jesus. And then in chapter 16 is what we call the first day of the week. It's Sunday, and it becomes Easter. Again, courageously, who comes to embalm the body of Jesus? Because he was crucified on Friday, and for Jews at sundown Friday, that's when Sabbath begins, and from then until Sunday morning, they can do no work, so they couldn't embalm the body, so they put his body in a tomb, and then on first thing Sunday morning, who comes but women come to the tomb to embalm Jesus? Again, put it in context. The followers of Christ, the disciples... They couldn't believe they went from the Last Supper. They went from Palm Sunday a week ago and the Last Supper to then they watched Jesus be executed by Roman crucifixion and they placed his body in a tomb. The disciples could put two plus two together and realize we're next. If they crucified Jesus, they will want to snuff out the entire message, the entire movement that we thought we were part of. And the Bible clearly states that on Easter Sunday morning, the disciples were behind locked doors, Fearing for their lives. They handpicked 11 disciples, but not all the followers of Jesus because some women mustered up the courage and said, I don't care. We're going to embalm him. And then there's something amazing. You see the depth of the love of Christ because in chapter 16, verse 9, and the other gospels identify that one woman in particular Jesus appeared to first. Her name was Mary Magdalene. She's the one that, that is, says that she didn't recognize Jesus at first or maybe she didn't, wasn't looking at him. And she says, tell me where they've laid him. And he said her name, Mary. You know those people in your life, it's just the way they say your name. They say it you're that way. 
And there's, some, there's a connection right there, and it goes way back. And you've got, he just said her name, Mary. And she looked and she said, Master, teacher. Realize the significance of appearing first and foremost to Mary Magdalene. Because Mary Magdalene, in the hell that ensued from the crucifixion to the resurrection, hers had to be the deepest and the darkest. Second, maybe only to Peter, who felt guilty for denying Christ. Because, see, Mary had seven demons cast out of her, and we can't imagine the hellishness of her existence. To be demon-possessed by seven demons. It's a combination of the greatest evil, the most hideous immorality, and borderline insanity, and all that stirred together into darkness and, and oppression. And Jesus delivered her from that. He was literally her savior. Can you imagine the panic that struck her when she watched that savior die on a cross and the thoughts that must have plagued her mind? Was this all a hoax? The fear she must have grappled with that if they did that to Jesus, dear God, the demons are going to come back. It was temporary relief. It wasn't even real because I thought he was the Savior and they couldn't possibly crucify the Savior. And if that happened, then fill in the horrific blanks about her own life. And fearful, no doubt weeping, she walks through that garden and he says, Mary. And Mark tells a story that highlights how much women matter to Jesus. I want to land on this to close. In Mark chapter 25, verse 25, it says, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years, 12 years, she'd endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was not helped at all, but had rather grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. There there word is again. Immediately Jesus, perceiving himself that the power proceeding from him, had gone forth, turned around the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. The woman, woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, if we're not careful in a Western mindset and trying to get through my read through the Bible in a year plan, I'll just kind of read through that, say, wasn't that nice, and move on. A few years ago, on a trip to Israel, I was there with our daughter, and uh, we stopped in the town where this happened, and they have a little shrine. And, and in there, as the person was lecturing about it, uh, I was taken back by this picture that was on the wall. And there is an artist's portrayal of the lowest level of a really big crowd and the hand of a woman who had been slowly bleeding to death for 12 years reaching out to touch Jesus, just the hem of his garment. Twelve years. 
Some of you ladies know exactly what that's like, whether it's a physical illness you've been battling for that long. Maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a marriage, a son or a daughter. Maybe it's an emotional illness or a mental illness or a depression that you're just so prone to. And, and, it, and it, it just is so crushing. And it says that this woman, that she had spent all that she had she endured much of the hands of physicians. And I understand that because, well, here's a doctor who has a cure. This doctor has a new treatment. This doctor's having great results. And so then, like now, she went to them and, and she got her hopes up. And she figured, scraped up the money and paid it down, hoping that this time the cure would be for real. And each time, she got worse. The Bible tells us hope deferred makes the heart sick. Can you imagine how heart sick she was after 12 years? Some of you have been carrying burdens, struggles, hurts, pains, disappointments, heartaches, illness. And you know what it is to be heart sick. She felt like a nameless face in a crowded universe. And over time, when something lasts, people kind of get care fatigue. They stop asking because you feel self-conscious answering, and it seems like same old, just still got that going on, and, and so you just keep it to yourself. And... When those struggles last a long time, you know, we were created body, soul, and spirit. And when we saw that image of an ultrasound and a baby in a mother's womb, it's not just a physical being. And when physical things happen, it still affects us, our soul and our spirit, it still affects us emotionally and mentally. And when emotional things happen, it can affect us physically and relational things. I mean, we're so complicated and intertwined that... Name, name the burden, name the crisis, name the load. The heaviness just tears at us. And what does Jesus do? She touches the hem of his garment and she feels something. And Jesus, walking through that crowd, notices something and he, he, he could easily have said, well, people are touching me and they're getting healed. No, he said, somebody touched me. Who is the somebody? Because she's not nobody. She's somebody. I want to talk to her. Can you imagine? I mean, the disciple, Lord, Lord, there's people all around you. How are we possible? Who, what do you mean who touched you? And Jesus knew what that woman knew, and she knew it was me. And so she, trembling, crawls out of the crowd and tells him that whole story. That's how the disciples knew it. Well, I'm so sorry, but it's been 12 years and I'm bankrupt and I, I, I didn't know I thought. And, but, and, and first of all, notice what, notice there's something she did that was the key to her healing, to God working, and it started here. The Apostle Paul tells us to be transformed, what? By the renewing of our mind. So much of what God wants to do in our life is dependent upon our thought life 
being consistent with his word. Because it says in verse 28, she came in the crowd, touched his cloak, for she thought, she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. She could easily have thought, I hear Jesus is in town. It's not for me. I hear Jesus is in town. He couldn't possibly care about my condition. She could have thought all those defeating thoughts that come to us so naturally, like breathing itself, but instead, no, she thought, this could be my day. Talk about courage. She makes her way to that crowd, and my goodness, hemorrhaging for 12 years, she had to be exhausted and very likely on the, on the ground like that picture portrays, crawling through a crowd, trying to time it just right to get in Jesus' path right when he walked by. And when she reached out and took the risk and she felt it, she didn't scream out in joy, but she probably wanted to. And then Jesus said, who touched me? And all eyes are on her, and she's trembling because she's like, oh, no, is he going to be angry? And then you look at what Jesus says. And who knows, maybe she'd heard about what Mary went through when Mary tried to anoint Jesus and all the ridicule and tension. I don't know. But she said, I don't care. I'm taking the risk anyway. And when Jesus stops and the whole crowd looks and those self-righteous eyes are looking at her like, who does she think she is? Oh, it's her. He looks at her and he says to her, daughter. And that word, for all of us who have one, is an incredibly meaningful word. From the moment that our daughter was born, when my wife gave birth to her at Miami Valley Hospital 30 years ago, I saw my daughter. I fell deeply in love with her as a father with his daughter and have felt that way toward her now. And I still tell her, I don't care how old you are, you're still my princess. A deeply relational word that says, and I'm sorry if some of you ladies don't have that connection with the person who knew you as daughter. I'm telling you, God looking to you, Jesus looks to you as his daughter. He has a love and a compassion and a care about you that you cannot imagine. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. There was no, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? No. And I believe Mark put those words, put that exchange, put that interaction in there, selected those stories, showed how women were so much the heroes of the resurrection, and they, women were the ones that Jesus first appeared to and went and took the life-changing, universe-changing message. He is risen. Women were the bearers of that news because women matter so much to Jesus. And with all due respects, I don't really care if you feel like you matter or not. Because the truth is, you do. And my feelings have lied to me before, as your feelings can lie to you. 
And so when I was prepping this message, it hit me like a ton of bricks and I debated with myself on how to, how to land this. And I've only done this before maybe on a Mother's Day service. And then yesterday in prayer time before the message, it was kind of confirmed by one of the prayer partners there. I want to have a, an altar invitation and it was going to be select, but now it's, it's expanded for all the women that are here. And I'm going to ask all of you to stand. And it's easier to do this now because I've seen two services and watched what God has done. So it was a little more intimidating, the first service, to take the risk. But I would like to ask every lady here, what that woman did was she told herself and then she acted on it and she made the move toward Jesus. And so I'm going to invite you in similar fashion with her as, as sort of an example, a model. I'm going to invite you to identify, to affirm, I am a daughter of God. I matter to Jesus. And if you have heartaches, cares, concerns, physical needs, relational needs, spiritual needs, emotional, or if you are feeling so blessed and just want to say thank you, regardless, the team is going to sing a chorus. I'm going to invite every woman, regardless of age, if you can physically do it, to come down here, stand across the front. You need to come in front of the altar rails all the way up to the, to the stage because we're going to fill it up. And when you come, just begin to quietly, prayerfully tell Jesus what's ever on your heart, and then we're going to have a word of prayer for you. Come as we sing. We are the sons, we are the daughters of God. No matter where we go, we're close to the Father's heart. And though we stumble, He will not let us fall. We are the
bow your heads with me? I know we couldn't possibly fit all the ladies down across the front. And while you are part of a crowd, we already know that Jesus sees every heart, every soul, every one of you where you are. So as our heads are bowed, would you first of all just picture Jesus in your mind? Have what I would call a spiritual daydream and just picture him with his arms outstretched with a smile on his face saying your name and saying, daughter. Just picture him. You can't help but run to him and he wraps his arms around you and you wrap your arms around him. And there is no such thing as insecure or inadequate or fearful or ashamed or anxious, depressed. He is the lover of your soul, soul deep. Picture him whispering in your ear, can I do anything for you? Not that he doesn't know. And as you stand here now, would you whisper to him whatever burdens you're carrying? Just tell him out loud, a quiet whisper. If it's a name, if it's a relationship, if it's a diagnosis, if it's a problem, a concern, just tell him your needs as we wait. Whisper it to him. What's the burden you carry? Because he cares deeply for you. And would you whisper to him, thank you? And whisper to him, I trust you. Thank you. I trust you. Lord Jesus, you see tears of joy, tears of pain. Lord, you see hearts longing for relief and hearts filled with gratitude. So grateful for the courage and the heroism that we've seen in women throughout the pages of Scripture and that we are the sons and daughters of God. Lord, we pray for an overwhelming awareness for every woman here in this room and every woman watching online today that you call them daughter, that you love her, that you know all about her, you care about her, you have plans for her, and you want to lead her and guide her and be her good shepherd. And I pray for an overwhelming sense of peace, an overwhelming sense that it is well with my soul. And a confidence that you hear us, that you care. Thank you for these women, for these girls, for these young ladies. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for their beauty. Thank you for your love. As we linger a moment, I ask the team to sing another chorus. Feel free to linger in prayer. Feel free to find a place to pray, but let's not dismiss just yet. Wait a few moments. If you need to slip out, you can, but take a moment and finish what's on your heart with the Lord, and then you can dismiss. Dismiss.